0: This is the audio lecture from Module 7, let's get right into it. Even in the midst of wars and political turmoil, Greeks had confidence in the power of the human mind. Driven by curiosity and a belief in reason, Greek thinkers, artists, and writers explored the nature of the universe and the place of people in it. To later admirers, Greek achievements in the arts represented the height of human development in the Western world. They looked back with deep respect on what one poet called the glory that was Greece. Some Greek thinkers challenged the belief that events were caused by the whim of the gods. Instead, they used observation and reason to find causes for events. The Greeks called these thinkers philosophers, meaning lovers of wisdom. Greek philosophers explored many subjects, from mathematics and music to logic, or rational thinking. Through reason and observation, they believed, they could discover laws that governed the universe. Much modern science traces its roots to the Greek search for such principles. Some Greek philosophers were interested in ethics and morality. They debated such questions as, what was the best kind of government, and what standards should rule human behavior? In Athens, the sophists questioned accepted ideas. To them, success was more important than moral truth. They developed skills in rhetoric, or the art of skillful speaking. Ambitious men could use clever and persuasive rhetoric to advance their careers. The turmoil of the Peloponnesian War led many young Athenians to follow the Sophists. Older citizens, however, accused the Sophists of undermining traditional Greek values. One outspoken critic of the Sophists was Socrates, an Athenian stonemason and philosopher. Most of what we know about Socrates comes from his student Plato. Socrates himself wrote no books. Instead, he passed his days in the town square asking people about their beliefs. Using a process we now call the Socratic method, he would pose a series of questions to a student or passing citizen and challenge them to examine the implications of their answers. To Socrates, this patient examination was a way to help others seek truth and self-knowledge. To many Athenians, however, such questioning was a threat to accepted values and traditions. When he was about 70 years old, Socrates was put on trial. His enemies accused him of corrupting the city's youth and failing to respect the gods. Standing before a jury of 501 citizens, Socrates offered a calm and reasoned defense. But the jurors condemned him to death. Loyal to the laws of Athens, Socrates accepted the death penalty. He drank a cup of hemlock a deadly poison. The execution of Socrates left Plato with a lifelong distrust of democracy. He fled Athens for ten years. When he returned, he set up a school called the Academy. There he taught and wrote about his own ideas. Like Socrates, Plato emphasized the importance of reason. Through rational thought, he argued, people could discover unchanging ethical values, recognize perfect beauty, and learn how best to organize society. In his book, The Republic, Plato described his vision of an ideal state. He rejected Athenian democracy because it had condemned Socrates just as it tended to other excesses. Instead, Plato argued that the state should regulate every aspect of its citizens' lives in order to provide for their best interests. He divided his ideal society into three classes, workers to produce the necessities of life, soldiers to defend the state, and philosophers to rule. This elite class of leaders would especially be trained to ensure order and justice. The wisest of them, a philosopher king, would have ultimate authority. Plato thought that, in general, men suppressed women in mental and physical tasks. But some women were superior to some men. Talented women, he said, should be educated to serve the state. The ruling elite, both men and women, should, would make military training together and raise their children in communal centers for the good of the republic. Plato's most famous student, Aristotle, developed his own ideas about government. He analyzed all forms of government, from monarchy to democracy, and found good and bad examples of each. Like Plato, he was suspicious of democracy, which he thought could lead to mob rule. In the end, he favored rule by a single, strong, and virtuous leader. Aristotle also stressed the question of how people ought to live. In his view, good conduct meant pursuing the golden mean a moderate course between the extremes. He promoted reason as the guiding force for learning. He set up a school, the Lyceum, for the study of all branches of knowledge. He left writings on politics, ethics, logic, biology, literature, and many other subjects. When the first European universities evolved, some 1,500 years later, their courses were based largely on the works and ideas of Aristotle. Plato argued that every object on Earth had an ideal form, The work of Greek artists and architects reflected a similar concern with balance, order, and beauty. Greek architects sought to convey a sense of perfect balance to reflect the harmony and order of the universe. The most famous example of Greek architecture is the Parthenon, a temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. The basic plan of the Parthenon, spelled P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-N, is a simple rectangle with tall columns supporting a gently sloping roof. The delicate curves and placement of the columns add dignity and grace. Greek architecture had been widely admired for centuries. Today, many public buildings throughout the world had incorporated Greek architectural elements, such as columns, in their designs. Early Greek sculptors carved figures in rigid poses, perhaps imitating Egyptian styles. By 450 BC, Greek sculptors had developed a new style that emphasized more natural forms. While their work was lifelike, it was also idealistic. That is, sculptors carved gods, goddesses, athletes, and famous men in a way that showed human beings in their most perfect, graceful form. The only Greek paintings to survive are on pottery. They offer intriguing views of everyday Greek life. Women carry water from wells, warriors race into battle, and athletes compete in javelin contests. Each scene is designed to fit the shape of the pottery. In literature, as in art, the ancient Greeks developed their own style. To later Europeans, Greek styles were a model of perfection. They admired what they called the classical style, referring to the elegant and balanced forms of traditional Greek works of art. Greek literature began with the epic poems of Homer, whose stirring tales inspired later writers. In later times, the poet Sappho sang a Song of Love and the beauty of her island home, while the poetry of Pindar celebrated the victors in athletic contests. Perhaps the most important Greek contribution to literature was in the field of drama. The first Greek plays evolved out of religious festivals, especially those held in Athens to honor the god of fertility and wine, Dionysus, spelled D-I-O-N-Y-S-U-S. Plays were performed in the large outdoor theaters with little or no scenery. Actors wore elaborate costumes and stylized masks. A chorus sang or chanted comments on the action taking place on stage. Greek dramas were often based on popular myths and legends. Through these familiar stories, playwrights discussed moral and social issues of explored the relationship between people and the gods. The greatest Athenian playwrights were uh, Aeschylus, spelled A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-U-S, Sophocles, spelled S-O-P-H-O-C-L-E-S, and Euripides, spelled E-U-R-I-P-I-D-E-S. All three wrote tragedies plays that told stories of human suffering that usually ended in disaster. The purpose of tragedy, the Greeks felt, was to stir up and then relieve the emotions of pity and fear. For example, in his play *Orestia* spelled O-R-E-S-T-E-I-A, Aeschylus showed a powerful family torn apart by betrayal, murder, and revenge. Audiences saw how even the most powerful could be subject to horrifying misfortune and how the wrath of the gods could bring down even the greatest heroes. In Antigone, A-N-T-I-G-O-N-E, Sophocles explored what happens when an individual's moral duty conflicts with the laws of the state. Antigone is a young woman whose brother had been killed leading a rebellion. King Creon forbids anyone to bury the traitor's body. When Antigone buries her brother anyway, she is sentenced to death. She defiantly tells Creon that duty to the gods is greater than human law. Like Sophocles, Euripides survived the horrors of the Peloponnesian War. That experience probably led him to question many accepted ideas of his day. His play suggested that people, not the gods, were the cause of human misfortune and suffering. In the Trojan Women, he stripped war of its glamour by showing the suffering of women who were victims of war. Some Greek playwrights wrote comedies, humorous plays that mocked people or customs. Almost all the surviving Greek comedies were written by Aristophanes, spelled A-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-A-N-E-S. In Lysistrata, spelled L-Y-S-I-S-T-R-A-T-A, he shows the women of Athens banding together to force their husbands to end a war against Sparta. Unlike tragedy, which focused on the events of the past, comedies ridiculed individuals of the day, including political figures, philosophers, and prominent members of society. Through ridicule, ridicule, some playwrights sharply criticized society, much as political cartoonists do today. The Greeks also applied observation, reason, and logic to the study of history. Herodotus, is often called the father of history in the Western world because he went beyond listing names of rulers or the retelling of ancient legends. Before writing the Persian Wars, Herodotus visited many lands, collecting many information from people who remembered the actual events he chronicled. In fact, Herodotus used the Greek term histori which means inquiry to define his work our history comes from this word but its definition has evolved today to simply mean the recording and studying of past events herodotus cast a critical eye on his sources noting bias and conflicting accounts however despite this special care for detail and accuracy his writings reflected his own view that the war was clear moral victory of greek love of freedom over persian tyranny he even invented conversations and speeches for historical figures. Another historian, Thucydides, spelled T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-S, who was a few years younger than Herodotus, wrote about the Peloponnesian War, a much less happy subject for the Greeks. He lived through the war and vividly described the war's savagery and corrupting influence on all those involved. Although he was an Athenian, he tried to be fair to both sides. Both writers set standards for future historians. Herodotus stressed the importance of research. Thucydides uh, showed the need to avoid bias. Chapter 4 Section 5 Alexander and the Hellenistic Age In 338 BC, Athens fell to the Macedonian army. Athens and other Greek city-states lost their independence. Yet the disaster ushered in a new age in which Greek culture spread from the Mediterranean to the borders of India. The architect of this new era was the man who would eventually become known to history as Alexander the Great. To the Greeks, the rugged, mountainous kingdom of Macedonia was a backward, half-civilized land. The rulers of this frontier land, in fact, were of Greek origin and kept ties to their Greek neighbors. As a youth, Philip II had lived in Thebes and had come to admire Greek culture. Later, he hired Aristotle as a tutor to his young son, Alexander. When Philip II gained the throne in 359 BC, he dreamed of conquering the proper city-states to the south. He built a superb and powerful army. Through threats, bribery, and diplomacy, he formed alliances with many Greek city-states. Others he conquered. In 338 BC, when Athens and Thebes joined forces against him, Philip II defeated them at the Battle of Chaeronea, spelled C-H-A-E-R-O-N-E-A. He then brought all Greece under his control. Philip had still grander dream, to conquer the Persian Empire. Before he could achieve that plan, though, he was assassinated at his daughter's wedding. Assassination is the murder of a public figure, usually for political reasons. Philip's queen, Olympias, then outmaneuvered his other wives and children to put her own son, Alexander, on the throne. Alexander was only 20 years old, yet he was already an experienced soldier who shared his father's ambitions. With Greece subdued, he began organizing the forces needed to conquer Persia. By 334 BC, he had enough ships to cross the Dardanelles, the strait separating Europe from Asia Minor. Persia was no longer the great power it had once been. The emperor Darius III was weak, and the provinces were often in rebellion against him. Still, the Persian Empire stretched more than 2,000 miles from Egypt to India. Alexander won his first victory against the Persians at the Granicus River. He then moved from victory to victory, marching through Asia Minor into Palestine and south to Egypt before turning east again to the Babylon in 331 BC. Other cities followed, but before Alexander could capture Darius, the Persian Emperor was murdered. With much of the Persian Empire under his control, the restless Alexander headed farther east. He crossed the Hindu Kush into northern India. There, in 326 BC, his troops for the first time faced soldiers mounted on war elephants. Although Alexander never lost a battle, his soldiers were tired of the long campaign and refused to go farther east. Reluctantly, Alexander agreed to turn back. After a long and difficult march, they reached Babylon, where Alexander began planning a new campaign. Before he could set out again, the 32-year-old fell victim to a sudden fever. As Alexander lay dying, his commanders asked to whom has left his immense empire. Quote, to the strongest, he said, to have whispered. In fact, no one leader proved strong enough to succeed Alexander. Instead, after years of disorder, three generals divided up the empire. Macedonia and Greece went to one general, Egypt to another, and most of Persia to a third. For the next 300 years, their descendants competed for power over the lands Alexander had conquered. Although Alexander's empire soon crumbled following his premature death, he had unleashed changes that would ripple across the Mediterranean world and the Middle East for centuries. His most lasting achievement was the spread of Greek culture. Across his far-flung empire, Alexander founded many new cities, most of them named after him. The generals who succeeded him founded still more. Greek soldiers, traders, and artisans settled these new cities. From Egypt to the borders of India, they built Greek temples, filled them with Greek statues, and held athletic contests as they had in Greece. Local people assimilated, or absorbed, Greek ideas. In turn, Greek settlers adopted local customs. Alexander had encouraged a blending of Eastern and Western cultures when he had married a Persian woman and urged his soldiers to follow his example. He had also adopted many Persian customs, including Persian dress. Gradually, after his death, a vital new culture emerged that blended Greek, Persian, Egyptian, and Indian influences. This Hellenistic civilization would flourish for several centuries. At the very heart of the Hellenistic world stood the city of Alexandria, Egypt located on the sea lanes between europe and asia its markets boasted a wide range of goods from greek marble to arabian spices to east african ivory a greek architect had drawn up plans for the city which would become home to almost a million people among the city's marvelous sights was the pharos an enormous lighthouse that soared 440 feet in the air alexander and his successors encouraged the work of scholars The rulers of Alexandria built the great museum as a center of learning. The museum boasted laboratories, lecture halls, and a zoo. Its library had thousands of scrolls representing the accumulated knowledge of the ancient world. Unfortunately, the library was later destroyed in a fire. Paintings, statues, and legal codes show that women were no longer restricted to their homes during the Hellenistic period. More women learned to read and write. Some became philosophers or poets. Royal women held considerable power, working along husbands and sons who were the actual rulers. In Egypt, the able and clever Queen Cleopatra VII came to rule in her own right. The cities of the Hellenistic world employed armies of architects and artists. Temples, palaces, and other public buildings were much larger and grander than the buildings of classical Greece. The elaborate new style reflected the desire of Hellenistic rulers to glorify themselves as godlike. Political turmoil during the Hellenistic age contributed to the rise of new schools of philosophy. The most influential was Stoicism, spelled S-T-O-I-C-I-S-M. Its founder, Zeno, spelled Z-E-N-O, urged people to avoid desires and disappointments by accepting calmly whatever life brought. Stoics preached high moral standards, such as the idea of protecting the rights of fellow humans. They taught that all people, including women and slaves, though unequal in society, were morally equal because all had power of reason. Stoicism later influenced many Roman and Christian thinkers. During the Hellenistic Age, scholars built on Greek, Babylonian, and Egyptian knowledge. In mathematics, Pythagoras, spelled P-Y-T-H-A-G-O-R-A-S, derived a formula to calculate the relationship between the sides of a right triangle. Euclid, spelled E-U-C-L-I-D, wrote The Elements, a textbook that became the basis for modern geometry. Using mathematics and careful observation, the astronomer Aristarchus, spelled A-R-I-S-T-A-R-C-H-U-S, argued that the Earth rotated on its axis and orbited the Sun. This theory of heliocentric or sun-centered solar system was not accepted by most scientists until almost 2,000 years later. Another Hellenistic astronomer, Eratosthenes, spelled E-R-A-T-O-S-T-H-E-N-E-S showed that the Earth was round and accurately calculated its circumference. The most famous Hellenistic scientist, Archimedes, spelled A-R-C-H-I-M-E-D-E-S, applied principles of physics to make practical inventions. He mastered the use of the lever and pulley and boasted, Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand on and I will move the world. Then, to demonstrate the power of his invention, Archimedes used it to draw a ship over the land before a crowd of odd spectators. About 400 BC, the Greek physician Hippocrates, spelled H-I-P-P-O-C-R-A-T-E-S, studied the causes of illness and looked for cures. The Hippocratic Oath attributed to him set ethical standards for doctors. Greek physicians swore to, quote, help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrong, end quote. Doctors today still take a similar oath. With its conquest of Asia Minor in 133 BC, Rome replaced Greece as the dominant power in the Mediterranean world. However, the Greek legacy remains. Greek works in the arts and sciences set a standard for later people of Europe. Greek ideas about law, freedom, justice, and government continue to influence political thinking to the present day. These achievements were especially remarkable because they they were produced by a scattering of tiny city-states whose rivalries left them too weak to defend themselves from conquest. Later, you will learn how the Greek legacy influenced the civilizations of Rome and of Western Europe.